Chapter One of Tarzan the Untamed. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Tarzan the Untamed by Edgar Burroughs. Chapter One Murder and Pillage. Hauptmann Fritz Schneider trudged wearily through the somber aisles of the dark forest. Sweat rolled down his bullet head and stood upon his heavy jowls and bull neck. His lieutenant marched beside him while under-lieutenant von Goss brought up the rear. Following with a handful of Ascaris, the tired and all but exhausted porters whom the black soldiers, following the example of their white officer, encouraged with the sharp points of bayonets and the metal-shod butts of rifles. There were no porters within reach of Hauptmann Schneider so he vented his Prussian spleen upon the Ascaris nearest at hand, yet with greater circumspection, since these men bore loaded rifles, and the three white men were alone with them in the heart of Africa. Ahead of the Hauptmann marched half his company, behind him the other half. Thus were the dangers of the savage jungle minimized for the German captain. At the forefront of the column staggered two naked savages fastened to each other by a neck-chain. These were the native guides impressed into the service of Kultur, and upon their poor bruised bodies Kultur's brand was revealed in divers' cruel wounds and bruises. Thus even in darkest Africa was the light of German civilization commencing to reflect itself upon the undeserving natives, just as at the same period, the fall of 1914, it was shedding its glorious effulgence upon benighted Belgium. It is true that the guides had led the party astray, but this is the way of most African guides. Nor did it matter that ignorance rather than evil intent had been the cause of their failure. It was enough for Hauptmann Fritz Schneider to know that he was lost in the African wilderness and that he had at hand human beings less powerful than he who could be made to suffer by torture. That he did not kill them outright was partially due to a faint hope that they might eventually prove the means of extricating him from his difficulties, and partially that, so long as they lived, they might be made to suffer. The poor creatures, hoping that chance might lead them at last upon the right trail, insisted that they knew the way, and so led on through a dismal forest, along a winding game trail trodden deep by the feet of countless generations of the savage denizens of the jungle. Here Tantor, the elephant, took his long way from dust-wallow to water. Here Buto, the rhinoceros, blundered blindly in his solitary majesty, while by night the great cats paced silently upon their padded feet beneath the dense canopy of overreaching trees toward the broad plain beyond where they found their best hunting. It was at the edge of this plain which came suddenly and unexpectedly before the eyes of the guides that their sad hearts beat with renewed hope. Here the Hauptmann drew a deep sigh of relief, for after days of hopeless wandering through almost impenetrable jungle, the broad vista of waving grasses dotted here and there with open park-like woods, and in the far distance the winding line of green shrubbery that denoted a river, appeared to the European a veritable heaven. The Hun smiled in his relief, passed a cheery word with his lieutenant, and then scanned the broad plain with his field glasses. Back and forth they swept across the rolling land until at last they came to rest upon a point near the center of the landscape and close to the green-fringed contours of the river. 
We are in luck, said Schneider to his companions. Do you see it? The lieutenant, who was also gazing through his own glasses, finally brought them to rest upon the same spot that had held the attention of his superior. Yes, he said, an English farm. It must be Greystoke's, for there is none other in this part of the British East Africa. God is with us, Herr Captain. We have come upon the English Schweinhund long before he can have learned that his country is at war with ours, replied Schneider. Let him be the first to feel the iron hand of Germany. Let us hope that he is at home, said the lieutenant, that we may take him with us when we report to Kraut at Nairobi. It will go well indeed with Herr Hauptmann Fritz Schneider if he brings in the famous Tarzan of the apes as a prisoner of war. Schneider smiled and puffed out his chest. You are right, my friend, he said. It will go well with both of us. But I shall have to travel far to catch General Kraut before he reaches Mombasa. These English pigs, with their contemptible army, will make good time to the Indian Ocean. It was in a better frame of mind that the small force set out across the open country toward the trim and well-kept farm buildings of John Clayton, Lord Greystoke. But disappointment was to be their lot, since neither Tarzan of the Apes nor his son was at home. Lady Jane, ignorant of the fact that a state of war existed between Great Britain and Germany, welcomed the officers most hospitably, and gave orders through her trusted Waziri to prepare a feast for the black soldiers of the enemy. Far to the east, Tarzan of the Apes was traveling rapidly from Nairobi toward the farm. At Nairobi he had received news of the World War that had already started and anticipating an immediate invasion of British East Africa by the Germans, was hurrying homeward to fetch his wife to a place of greater security. With him were a score of his Iban warriors, but far too slow for the ape-man was the progress of these trained and hardened woodsmen. When necessity demanded, Tarzan of the apes sloughed the thin veneer of his civilization, and with it the hampering apparel that was its badge. In a moment the polished English gentleman reverted to the naked ape-man. His mate was in danger. For the time, that single thought dominated. He did not think of her as Lady Jane Greystoke, but rather as the she he had won by the might of his steel thews, and that he must hold and protect by virtue of the same offensive armament. It was no member of the House of Lords who swung swiftly and grimly through the tangled forest, or trod with untiring muscles the wide spaces of open plain. It was a great he-ape, filled with a single purpose that excluded all thoughts of fatigue or danger. Little Manu, the monkey, scolding and chattering in the upper terraces of the forest, saw him pass. Long had it been since he had thus beheld the great Tarmangani, naked and alone, hurtling through the jungle. Bearded and gray was Manu, the monkey, and to his dim old eyes came the fire of recollection of those days when Tarzan of the Apes had ruled supreme, lord of the jungle, over all the myriad life that trod the matted vegetation between the boles of the great trees, or flew, or swung, or climbed in the leafy fastness, upward to the very apex of the loftiest terraces. And Numa the lion, lying up for the day close beside last night's successful kill, blinked his yellow-green eyes and twitched his tawny tail as he caught the scent spore of his ancient enemy. 
nor was Tarzan senseless to the presence of Numa or Manu or any of the many jungle beasts he passed in his rapid flight toward the west. No particle had his shallow probing of English society dulled his marvelous sense faculties. His nose had picked out the presence of Numa the lion even before the majestic king of the beasts was aware of his passing. He had heard noisy little Manu, and even the soft rustling of the parting shrubbery where Sheeta passed before either of these alert animals sensed his presence. But however keen the senses of the ape-man, however swift his progress through the wild country of his adoption, however mighty the muscles that bore him, he was still mortal. Time and space placed their inexorable limits upon him, nor was there another who realized this truth more keenly than Tarzan. He chafed and fretted that he could not travel with the swiftness of thought, and that the long, tedious miles stretching far ahead of him must require hours and hours of tireless effort upon his part before he would swing at last from the final bough of the fringing forest into the open plain and in sight of his goal. Days it took, even though he lay up at night for but a few hours, and left to chance the finding of meat directly on his trail. If Wapi, the antelope, or Horta, the boar, chanced in his way when he was hungry, he ate, pausing but long enough to make the kill and cut himself a steak. Then at last the long journey drew to its close, and he was passing through the last stretch of heavy forest that bounded his estate upon the east and then this was traversed and he stood upon the plain's edge looking out across his broad lands toward his home at the first glance his eyes narrowed and his muscles tensed even at that distance he could see that something was amiss a thin spiral of smoke arose at the right of the bungalow where the barns had stood but there were no barns there now and from the bungalow chimney from which smoke should have arisen there arose nothing once again Tarzan of the Apes was speeding onward, this time even more swiftly than before, for he was goaded now by a nameless fear, more product of intuition than of reason. Even as the beasts, Tarzan of the Apes seemed to possess a sixth sense. Long before he reached the bungalow, he had almost pictured the scene that finally broke upon his view. Silent and deserted was the vine-covered cottage. Smoldering embers marked the site of his great barns. Gone were the thatched huts of his sturdy retainers, empty the fields, the pastures, and corrals. Here and there vultures rose and circled above the carcasses of men and beasts. It was with a feeling as nearly akin to terror as he ever had experienced that the ape-man finally forced himself to enter his home. The first sight that met his eyes set the red haze of hate and blood-lust across his vision, for there, crucified against the wall of the living-room, was Wasimbu, giant son of the faithful Muviro, and for over a year the personal bodyguard of Lady Jane. The overturned and shattered furniture of the room, the brown pools of dried blood upon the floor, and prints of bloody hands on walls and woodwork evidenced something of the frightfulness of the battle that had been waged within the narrow confines of the apartment. Across the baby grand piano lay the corpse of another black warrior, while before the door of Lady Jane's boudoir were the dead bodies of three more of the faithful Greystoke servants. The door of this room was closed. With drooping shoulders and dull eyes, Tarzan stood gazing dumbly at the insensate panel which hid from him what horrid secret he dared not even guess. 
Slowly, with leaden feet, he moved toward the door. Gropingly his hand reached for the knob. Thus he stood for another long minute, and then, with a sudden gesture, he straightened his giant frame, threw back his mighty shoulders, and with fearless head held high, swung back the door and stepped across the threshold into the room which held for him the dearest memories and associations of his life. No change of expression crossed his grim and stern-set features as he strode across the room and stood beside the little couch and the inanimate form which lay face downward upon it, the still, silent thing that had pulsed with life and youth and love. No tear dimmed the eye of the ape-man, but the god who made him alone could know the thoughts that passed through this still savage brain. For a long time he stood there just looking down upon the dead body, charred beyond recognition, and then he stooped and lifted it in his arms. As he turned the body over and saw how horribly death had been meted, he plumbed in that instant the innermost depths of grief and horror and hatred nor did he require the evidence of the broken German rifle in the outer room or the torn and blood-stained service cap upon the floor to tell him who had been the perpetrators of this horrid and useless crime. For a moment he had hoped against hope that the blackened corpse was not that of his mate, but when his eyes discovered and recognized the rings upon her fingers, the last faint ray of hope forsook him. In silence, in love and in reverence, he buried in the little rose garden that had been Jane Clayton's pride and love, the poor charred form, and beside it the great black warriors who had given their lives so futilely in their mistress's protection. At one side of the house Tarzan found other newly made graves, and in these he sought final evidence of the identity of the real perpetrators of the atrocities that had been committed here in his absence. Here he disinterred the bodies of a dozen German Ascaris, and found upon their uniforms the insignia of the company and regiment to which they had belonged. This was enough for the ape-man. White officers had commanded these men, nor would it be a difficult task to discover who they were. Returning to the rose garden, he stood among the hum-trampled blooms and bushes above the grave of his dead. With bowed head he stood there in a last mute farewell. As the sun sank slowly behind the towering forests of the west, he turned slowly away upon the still distinct trail of Hauptmann Fritz Schneider and his blood-stained company. His was the suffering of the dumb brute, mute, but though voiceless no less poignant, at first his vast sorrow numbed his other faculties of thought. His brain was overwhelmed by the calamity to such an extent that it reacted to but a single objective suggestion. She is dead, she is dead, she is dead. Again and again this phrase beat monotonously upon his brain, a dull, throbbing pain. Yet mechanically his feet followed the trail of her slayer, while subconsciously his every sense was upon the alert for the ever-present perils of the jungle. Gradually the labor of his great grief brought forth another emotion so real, so tangible, that it seemed a companion walking at his side. It was hate, and it brought to him a measure of solace and of comfort, for it was a sublime hate 
that ennobled him as it had ennobled countless thousands since hatred for germany and germans it centered upon the slayer of his mate of course but it included everything german animate or inanimate as the thought took firm hold upon him he paused and raising his face to goro the moon cursed with upraised hands the authors of this hideous crime that had been perpetrated in that once peaceful bungalow behind him and he cursed their progenitors their progeny and all their kind the while he took silent oath to war upon them relentlessly until death overtook him there followed almost immediately a feeling of content for where before his future at best seemed but a void now it was filled with possibilities the contemplation of which brought him if not happiness at least a surcease of absolute grief for before him lay a great work that would occupy his time stripped not only of all the outward symbols of civilization tarzan had also reverted morally and mentally to the status of the savage beast he had been reared never had his civilization been more than a veneer put on for the sake of her he loved because he thought it made her happier to see him thus in reality he had always held the outward evidences of so-called culture in deep contempt civilization meant to tarzan of the apes a curtailment of freedom in all its aspects freedom of action freedom of thought freedom of love freedom of hate clothes he abhorred uncomfortable hideous confining things that reminded him somehow of bonds securing him to the life he had seen the poor creatures of london and paris living clothes were the emblem of that hypocrisy for which civilization stood a pretense that the wearers were ashamed of what the clothes covered of the human form made in the semblance of god tarzan knew how silly and pathetic the lower orders of animals appeared in the clothing of civilization for he had seen several poor creatures thus apparelled in various travelling shows in europe and he knew too how silly and pathetic man appears in them since the only men he had seen in the first twenty years of his life had been like himself naked savages the ape-man had a keen admiration for a well-muscled well-proportioned body whether lion or antelope or man and it had ever been beyond him to understand how clothes could be considered more beautiful than a clear firm healthy skin or coat and trousers more graceful than the gentle curves of rounded muscles playing beneath a flexible hide in civilization tarzan had found greed and selfishness and cruelty far beyond that which he had known in his familiar savage jungle and though civilization had given him his mate and several friends whom he loved and admired he never had come to accept it as you and i who have known little or nothing else so it was with a sense of relief that he now definitely abandoned it and all that it stood for and went forth into the jungle once again stripped to his loincloth and weapons the hunting-knife of his father hung at his left hip his bow and his quiver of arrows were slung across his shoulders while around his chest over one shoulder and beneath the opposite arm was coiled the long grass rope without which tarzan would have felt quite as naked as would you should you be suddenly thrust upon a busy highway clad only in a union suit a heavy war spear which he sometimes carried in one hand and again slung by a thong about his neck so that it hung down his back completed his armament and his apparel 
the diamond-studded locket with the pictures of his mother and father that he had worn always until he had given it as a token of his highest devotion to Jane Clayton before their marriage, was missing. She always had worn it since, but it had not been upon her body when he found her slain in her boudoir, so that now his quest for vengeance included also a quest for the stolen trinket. Toward midnight, Tarzan commenced to feel the physical strain of his long hours of travel and to realize that even muscles such as his had their limitations. His pursuit of the murderers had not been characterized by excessive speed, but rather more in keeping with his mental attitude, which was marked by a dogged determination to require from the Germans more than an eye for an eye and more than a tooth for a tooth, the element of time entering but slightly into his calculations. Inwardly, as well as outwardly, Tarzan had reverted to beast, and in the lives of beasts time, as a measurable aspect of duration, has no meaning. The beast is actively interested only in now, and it is always now, and always shall be. There is an eternity of time for the accomplishment of objects. The ape-man naturally had a slightly more comprehensive realization of the limitations of time, but like the beasts he moved with majestic deliberation when no emergency prompted him to swift action. Having dedicated his life to vengeance, vengeance became his natural state and therefore no emergency, so he took his time in pursuit. That he had not rested earlier was due to the fact that he had felt no fatigue, his mind being occupied by thoughts of sorrow and revenge. But now he realized that he was tired, and so he sought a jungle giant that had harbored him upon more than a single other jungle night. Dark clouds moving swiftly across the heavens now and again eclipsed the bright face of Goro the moon, and forewarned the ape-man of impending storm. In the depth of the jungle the cloud shadows produced a thick blackness that might almost be felt, a blackness that you and me might have proven terrifying with its accompaniment of rustling leaves and crackling twigs, and its even more suggestive intervals of utter silence, in which the crudest of imaginations might have conjured crouching beasts of prey, tensed for the fatal charge. But through it Tarzan passed unconcerned, yet always alert. Now he swung lightly to the lower terraces of the overarching trees, when some subtle sense warned him that Numa lay upon a kill directly in his path. Or again he sprang lightly to one side as Buto the rhinoceros lumbered toward him along the narrow, deep-worn trail, for the ape-man, ready to fight upon necessity's slightest pretext, avoided unnecessary quarrels. When he swung himself at last into the tree he sought, the moon was obscured by a heavy cloud, and the tree-tops were waving wildly in a steadily increasing wind, whose soughing drowned the lesser noises of the jungle. Upward went Tarzan toward a sturdy crotch, across which he long since had laid and secured a little platform of branches. It was very dark now, darker even than it had been before, for almost the entire sky was overcast by thick black clouds. Presently the beast-man paused, his sensitive nostrils dilating as he sniffed the air around him. Then, with the swiftness and agility of a cat, he leaped far outward upon a swaying branch, sprang upward through the darkness, caught another, swung himself upon it, and then to one still higher. What could have so suddenly transformed his matter-of-fact ascent of the giant bowl to the swift and wary action of his detour among the branches? You or I could have seen nothing, not even the little platform that an instant before had been just above him and which now was immediately below. 
but as he swung above it we should have heard an ominous growl and then as the moon was momentarily uncovered we should have seen both the platform dimly and a dark mass that lay stretched upon it a dark mass that presently as our eyes became accustomed to the lesser darkness would take the form of sheeta the panther in answer to the cat's growl a low and equally ferocious growl rumbled upward from the ape-man's deep chest a growl of warning that told the panther he was trespassing upon the other's lair but sheeta was in no mood to be dispossessed with upturned snarling face he glared at the brown-skinned tarmangani above him very slowly the ape-man moved inward along the branch until he was directly above the panther in the man's hand was the hunting-knife of his long-dead father the weapon that had first given him his real ascendancy over the beasts of the jungle but he hoped not to be forced to use it knowing as he did that more jungle battles were settled by hideous growling than by actual combat the law of bluff holding quite as good in the jungle as elsewhere only in matters of love and food did the great beasts ordinarily close with fangs and talons tarzan braced himself against the bole of the tree and leaned closer toward sheeta still or a balus he cried panther rose to a sitting position his bared fangs but a few feet from the ape-man's taunting face tarzan growled hideously and struck at the cat's face with his knife i am tarzan of the apes he roared this is tarzan's lair go or i will kill you though he spoke in the language of the great apes of the jungle it is doubtful that sheeta understood the words though he knew well enough that the hairless ape wished to frighten him from his well-chosen station past which edible creatures might be expected to wander some time during the watches of the night like lightning the cat reared and struck a vicious blow at his tormentor with great bared talons that might well have torn away the ape-man's face had the blow landed but it did not land tarzan was even quicker than sheeta as the panther came to all fours again upon the little platform Tarzan unslung his heavy spear and prodded at the snarling face, and as Sheeta warded off the blows, the two continued their horrid duet of blood-curdling roars and growls. Goaded to frenzy, the cat presently determined to come up after this disturber of his peace, but when he essayed to leap to the branch that held Tarzan, he found the sharp spear-point always in his face, and each time as he dropped back he was prodded viciously in some tender part but at length rage having conquered his better judgment he leaped up the rough bowl to the very branch upon which tarzan stood now the two faced each other upon even footing and sheeta saw a quick revenge and a supper all in one the hairless ape thing with the tiny fangs and the puny talons would be helpless before him the heavy limb bent beneath the weight of the two beasts as sheeta crept cautiously out upon it and tarzan backed slowly away growling the wind had risen to the proportions of a gale, so that even the greatest giants of the forest swayed, groaning to its force, and the branch upon which the two faced each other rose and fell like the deck of a storm-tossed ship. Goro was now entirely obscured, but vivid flashes of lightning lit up the jungle at brief intervals, revealing the grim tableau of primitive passion upon the swaying limb. Tarzan backed away drawing sheeta further from the stem of the tree and out upon the tapering branch where his footing became ever more precarious the cat infuriated by the pain of spear wounds was overstepping the bounds of caution 
Already he had reached a point where he could do little more than maintain a secure footing, and it was this moment that Tarzan chose to charge. With a roar that mingled with the booming thunder from above, he leaped toward the panther, who could only claw futilely with one huge paw, while he clung to the branch with the other. But the ape-man did not come within that parabola of destruction. Instead, he leaped above menacing claws and snapping fangs, turning in mid-air and alighting upon Sheeta's back, and at the instant of impact his knife struck deep into the tawny side. Then Sheeta, impelled by pain and hate and rage and the first law of nature, went mad. Screaming and clawing, he attempted to turn upon the ape-thing clinging to his back. For an instant he toppled upon the now wildly gyrating limb, clutching frantically to save himself, and then plunged downward into the darkness, with Tarzan still clinging to him. Crashing through splintering branches, the two fell. Not for an instant did the ape-man consider relinquishing his death-hold upon his adversary. He had entered the lists in mortal combat, and true to the primitive instincts of the wild, the unwritten law of the jungle, one or both must die before the battle ended. Sheeta, cat-like, alighted upon four outsprawled feet, the weight of the ape-man crushing him to earth, the long knife again embedded in his side. Once the panther struggled to rise, but only to sink to earth again. Tarzan felt the giant muscles relax beneath him. Sheeta was dead. Rising, the ape-man placed a foot upon the body of his vanquished foe, raised his face toward the thundering heavens, and as the lightning flashed and the torrential rain broke upon him, screamed forth the wild victory cry of the bull-ape. Having accomplished his aim and driven the enemy from his lair, Tarzan gathered an armful of large fronds and climbed to his dripping couch. Laying a few of the fronds upon the poles, he lay down and covered himself against the rain with the others, and despite the wailing of the wind and the crashing of the thunder, immediately fell asleep. End of chapter 1